my name is Mumta Menhas, and this is episode two of Creating Third Spaces, a podcast about resistance, identity, and art within the South Asian community in the greater Toronto area. Last episode, I spoke to Mira Safi and Mizba Ahmed, examining how their art and art making is intricately tied to their identity, which are influenced by migration and travel. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. It'll help a lot in understanding this one. I'll continue talking about the themes and concepts from last episode, but also transition into new ones. We'll examine how art can be used as a form of activism or transformative resistance, a concept I first learned in my undergraduate degree at Carleton University from Professor Egla Martinez Salazar, who described it as epistemic creativity, to create knowledge within acts of resistance, sometimes creatively and collaboratively. It is described by Daniel G. Solorzano and Dolores Delgado Bernal as a kind of resistance that goes further than social reproduction theories that tend to see social actors as being acted upon by power structures. They offer instead theory that, quote, demonstrates how individuals negotiate and struggle with structures and create meanings of their own from these interactions, end quote. Application of this framework also involves a critique of social oppression and fighting for social justice. This puts the power back in the hands of the individual. The artists I interview within this research project can be seen as practicing transformative resistance by creatively creating knowledge with their art and using this knowledge and creativity within institutions and their professions to challenge structures and practices even at risk to their own careers. We'll also talk about how community and collaboration assist in transformative resistance and impact these artists' work as well as their sense of self. First, let's go back to how art and identity are closely tied for these artists and in some cases can be used to challenge and change their own identity. This was the case for Pamela Matharu. So I identify as a visual artist and a educator and cultural producer. I met and interviewed Pamela in her home in downtown Toronto, and she was kind enough to get some Indian snacks like pakoras and papri chart for us to munch on. In the spring of 2019, Pamela had her first solo show entitled One of These Things is Not Like the Other. It included two installations at Ace Bay's gallery. It explored the politics of archives, decolonial aesthetics, and self-preservation and questioned how cultural programming and production has historically and continually failed Black, Indigenous, and people of color. It questions how we survive in archives and how we are erased. One room examined tapes she found in the garbage of the Art Gallery of Ontario Archives, while the other paid homage to artist Amritishir Gill. We'll talk more about these installations in a bit. One of these things is not like the other was personal for Pamela, who has been practicing art for over two decades, and has spent most of her time facilitating and educating, rather than creating. The exhibition was her way to reclaim her identity as a visual artist, and that caused some uneasy feelings. I have to say that with a caveat that I also just had my first solo show in in that 25-year practice at A-Space. So my fear was coming from a space of People know me in one context and they have very fixed ideas of us, like in in terms of our identities. So it was almost like I had to, in some ways, prove um, the naysayers wrong by illustrating that I'm also a maker and a cultural thinker and a cultural producer and 
all these kind of layers. Pamela later elaborates on her use of us in our by connecting to the experience of other marginalized artists. Often the case with racialized artists and then also um, queer and trans artists and uh, women artists is that you often have to debunk myths that exist already, tropes that exist out there about us. And if you fit into those uh, categories, often folks just want to pin you down and say like, oh, no, this person is this. With Pamela's statement, we see how much identity can be influenced by outside factors. Pamela has considered herself an artist for the greater part of her career. She attended York University, graduating with a Bachelor's of Fine Arts, and she has been working in the arts field, bringing artists together, for years. But she realized other people, even people in her own community, didn't see her that way because of her work as an educator. But in Pamela's eyes, she can be both an artist and an educator, and always has been. She wanted to use this project to challenge the ideas people have of her and others. I think it's very interesting who, how and who gets to be whatever they want to be. So it's definitely, for me, it was about challenging power and power and privilege and control around narratives and particularly my own narrative, right? Like, no, I don't want you to fix me in a particular light. Mira Sethi, who you heard last episode, echoes Pamela's statements, explaining that lots of women artists, Black artists, Indigenous artists, and artists of color don't get to be in the forefront. She says, Most of the artists who are shown are still men, even though most of the people running arts institutions are women. Uh, Most of the artists who get shown are still not people of color, not Indigenous artists, not Black artists. Pamela's and Mira's statements about the treatment of marginalized artists comes from their own lived experiences and work within these institutions, but also is rooted in systemic barriers. Canada has a long history of excluding people of color, Indigenous peoples, Black folks, and queer folks from institutions and positions of power, and this extends to the creative industries. It's apparent this exclusion is still ongoing, and Pamela's exhibition really does explain how it keeps happening. Her exhibition goes beyond just redefining her own identity, but became an institutional critique and a want to care for artists. When people ask me, like, you know, in a nutshell, what's the show about? It's about cultural safety, feeling safe in these institutions. Like, who thinks about those things when we when we are otherized most of the time? Like, you know, so, so yeah, it was about thinking about thinking through safe spaces. For Pamela, the need to create safe spaces has always been something in the back of her mind, but really began to take shape a decade ago when she found the tapes. The show arrived at me finding some discarded uh, media texts, like media tapes from the AGO Library and Archives. And what I ended up doing, I had, I was in possession of those tapes for 12 years, and they were labeled Identity in a Foreign Place. And I didn't have these to show you the last time, but I, I just retrieved these from my... Oh. Yeah, so this is... There they are. This is what I found in the garbage. And this was an auxiliary program that occurred in October of 1993 at the Art Gallery of Ontario. The tapes consisted of several presentations and pieces, one with poet and writer Lakshmi Gill talking about her difficulties navigating the publishing industry, which was not welcoming to writers of color. These tapes also included a visual arts show called Perspective 93, featuring artists Lanny Maestro and Mika Lexia, who were talking about their experiences in the arts world. 
she began to research the exhibition and found four reviews about the show. One in particular was from the Globe and Mail newspaper and really stood out to Pamela because of how the critic described Meister specifically. Lenny Maestro, he calls her whiny because she is of Filipino descent and she's talking about the trauma because the Philippines has been invaded by pretty much all all of the colonizers and she's talking about their history. Of course, this is before the time when we started using the word trauma-informed work. Um, so the work is talking about her, like, her cultural experience and surviving trauma and of her people and he did not... He wasn't down for it, but yet uh, he calls Micah the modern-day Caravaggio, and he calls Lanny whiny. After reflecting on the experiences of Gil and Maestro, Pamela began to see similarities in her own life. That's 93, and at the time it was 2018 when I started looking at this work. So I was like, wow, I kept rewinding the tapes, watching them, rewinding them, watching her, just continuously tell the story and how it just in some ways reverberated in my in my body and the somatic feeling I was getting so I knew there was something that I was connecting with and I think it was her story about being it doesn't seem like she was accepted readily like in her practice. Listening to these tapes Pamela started to come to some very different realizations and this pushed her even harder to create this exhibition for herself and for others. Where has my time and my labor gone in 25 years? Not clearly, if this is my first exhibition as an artist, where has that time gone? It's gone towards basically doing unpaid labor for organizations. You know, like I I started to then connect the dots on how racialized female labor is used in the visual arts sector. So I guess, like I said, like I did a thing uh, around like basically calling the system's bluff. The bluff being that they say they want racialized folks to like be a part of it, but only in like their specific ways and their specific Absolutely. Boxes. It's like they're still gatekeeping, even if the, if it's free labor. This gatekeeping leads to surface level representation and lack of visibility for Black, Indigenous, and people of color in these institutions, what Pamela calls the cultural iceberg. What we see is food, clothing, and holidays, but we never get the nuanced and complicated parts of what's underneath. Her critique can be extended to multicultural policy as a whole, because many argue it focuses too much on cultural identity and does not include the transnational and interconnected relations that exist within people. This is part of the reason Pamela rejects the term South Asian, for being what she calls state-derived. If you remember from last episode, the term was created by American anthropologists and geographers, and many think homogenizes a diverse and complicated region. She adds it is often placed on or given to her and her work without her consent. However, she recognizes that it's not easy trying to fit yourself into a box when there are multiple parts to you, especially someone who has grown up in a very different environment compared to their parents. I have had to play with how I pin my identity through my, like, you know, my biography when I do go into certain cultural spaces. So I have, like, you know, bounced around the idea that I am a Canadian artist. Oh, I'm a Canadian sick artist. Oh, I'm a Canadian sick feminist artist. I'm a Canadian sick queer artist. Like, I've played with that over the course of 25 years. And I, some ways, I didn't realize how much it does matter when a younger generation is watching you. And they are being seen too when you name yourself in that context. So then I 
then I said, there's a first time in my history of practicing art did that I said that I was, you know, of North Indian Punjabi Sikh descent. Pamela's recognition to how young people will respond to her naming herself shows how incredibly conscious she is because she knows people are looking up to her. When I interviewed Pamela, she was still processing the exhibition and the public's reception of it. But she does recognize that it was significant and explains why it was necessary to emphasize community and collaboration with her exhibition. I think the most significant part is that I I created a space that was about transformational healing. So what was I going to do with these documents? You know, it's almost like this, you know, the system doesn't really need to hear how they, I think they, they very clearly understand how they fail us. The counter response, what I felt was intuitively a counter response, was to center community. Pamela's want to create space for creativity and collaboration while also calling out the failures of the cultural institution is why I believe her work showcases transformative resistance. She's not only working in the name of social justice, but she's directly challenging the institution. Her institutional critique goes beyond issues of representation. She's consciously and actively trying to create safe spaces to heal, to learn and unlearn, and also to create new knowledges. During the exhibition, Pamela also redistributed her artist fees so she could hire facilitators and create workshops, a key part of her exhibition, making space so knowledges could be created and shared, which otherwise might not have been. Because of her large focus on collaboration, Pamela refers to herself as a gatecrasher. Gatecrashing pulls from the idea of gatekeeping, which keeps out the voices, work, and ideas of already marginalized peoples, or only allows one-dimensional versions of them. Many of the artists felt this was a problem in the creative industries, leading them to use their art to challenge the institution and critique it. Pamela did this by bringing artists from various backgrounds together. So her first solo show was far from solo. I crashed it because I came with like 24, like 39 other people, basically. And who does that (laughs) when you're doing a solo show? So yeah, that was my gate crashing uh, experience. Someone who practices transformative resistance with her art is curator Noor Bangu. Beginning her curatorial career in Winnipeg, she moved to Toronto for her doctorate degree in communication and culture the same graduate program as me, coincidentally, and we met at Ryerson University for the interview. She describes her creation style has become even more collaborative as her career has progressed. Yeah, so at the beginning, I was very, like, open and talking to artists about, like, yeah, let's work together to see how this is going to look in the space. But in the last two or three projects, it's been, like, even more collaborative. Noor further explains that curating is deeply connected to her sense of self. Work as a mediator between so many different people and ideas. So it's like being curators really kind of taking care of a, taking care of people, but also relationships. So it's like this kind of glue that um, keeps people together and holds the project up. And I really, I feel like my personality and, you know, the kind of person I am, it just like fits really well. Collaboration is key because Newer herself uses these networks for her own growth and resilience. She explains that finding her family and community within curating is one of the ways she has built her confidence and has been able to keep practicing her craft. So it just really kind of gave me a lot of confidence and agency. So I feel 
more grounded in my work and also able to take on heavy projects um, just because the journey was a little difficult at the beginning and like the networks and the friends that I made along the way were also very supportive and so like my foundation is very strong and that's because of the work I have been doing. She also feels like it's her job as a curator to provide opportunities and bring people together. She describes it as her call to action. But I think the call to action would be to create spaces and opportunities for for criticizing the kind of world we've inherited or potential to like move into different futures. One way Noor criticized the art world was through her residency at the School of Art Gallery in Winnipeg. This is an exhibition she curated in 2018 and reflects on often. While at the gallery, she discovered it had no woman of color in its collection. So as a way to call attention to this shortfall, she curated a two-part exhibition, in which the first part had empty walls to showcase the gaps, and then for three weeks, she actively had people drop off their work to fill the room. By giving these artists a platform and calling attention to the shortfalls of a gallery, even at risk to her residency, Noor is practicing transformative resistance. I met so many people that I'm still in touch with and for so many of them it was like their first exhibition and like to kind of challenge the rules of exhibition making that like you have to be like at a certain level or like produce certain kind of work to be shown. So yeah we like fought and like did that work together and that was a really incredible um, experience. Noor's curation also allows her to mix parts of herself. You can see themes of hybridity when I asked Noor about her doctoral research, which focuses on 19th century collections of Islamic art. She criticizes the viewing practices of archival objects that began as stealing objects from the colonized for the colonizers to admire and gawk at, and continues to persist to some extent. She also recognizes her place as a Sikh artist working with Islamic art, and questions what right she has studying these objects, despite not being Muslim. Noor justifies herself, stating, Pre-colonial India, which was like, like so much overlap, so much amalgamation, and like sharing. Um, so there's a lot of Sikh objects in Islamic art collections, and the ways in which Islamic art was solidified as a field of art historical study impacted the way that South Asian art came into these collections and how it's being read. So there's like so much overlap and that's also such a colonial way of thinking that you have to like, you know, you have to have been raised as a Muslim or like from a Muslim country. It's like failing to realize how together in different ways before this time and forgetting about those circuits and those networks. Additionally, both Pamela and Noor use Punjabi and Hindi words within their work, not only because of their ties to their culture, but to express feelings and emotions that cannot be described in English. Individually, they created a betuk, a word in several South Asian languages meaning an intentional gathering, as a way to discuss and critique how art and artists are displayed and talked about within institutions. Its purpose was to practice activism and resistance. Language plays an important role in hybridization as it is tightly connected to religion and faith and can help people negotiate their sense of self within cultural practices. The use of their native tongues also challenges the dominant English, as Pamela describes. Well, I think language, it's like so limiting to expect like the colonizer's language to cover everything. 
Pamela's Beituk paid homage to artist Amrita Sher Gill, an Indian and Hungarian artist whose paintings became well-known in the 20th century. Pamela created a space to talk about the exhibition and Shergill's story, which had a renewed focus when Shergill was featured in the New York Times Overlook series. The series wrote obituaries of remarkable but often forgotten people. The Times reported that Shergill died due to a botched abortion, which shocked many, including Pamela, and she wanted to use the Beituk as a way to talk about the harm that happens to artists. Noor created a Beituk while presenting a lecture during a residency in Oslo, Norway, but found it difficult to get her point across. She tried it again during an exhibition at the same residency and just sat on a rug and had people come to her, resulting in valuable discussions about art and archiving and inspired Noor to learn from her missteps. So with the Betuk, the second Betuk I did in Oslo, where I just like sat and let people come to me and we talked about whatever. So being open to failure, open to like new conversations, this kind of openness is also seen with curator and visual artist Hiba Mian. Based in Mississauga, her identity and path in life came into fruition because of her art. She has her own initiative called Open Gallery. It provides a chance for artists in the GTA to have their work exhibited with a minimal submission fee. How she came to this initiative comes from a troublesome time in art school at McMaster University. When talking about her time in art school, she immediately begins talking about the negative experience she had. I just felt out of place at Mac, to be honest. I felt like I was being judged, and I didn't feel comfortable in any of the critique sessions at all. She goes on to explain that she began wearing the hijab, a garment that in Hippa's case covers her hair, ears, and neck, when she started art school at McMaster. And it was a very personal and spiritual journey. Because of this journey, she began making art about the hijab to express her feelings, which weren't always taken well by her peers. I was the only hijabi in my class. I was the only Muslim in my class. And I remember one of my critiques in third year, I worked so hard on this print production. And it was all about the hijab and like the line work and the mark making. And I was in the studio for almost every day, to be honest, up until that critique. Um, and I remember walking to walking into that critique and everyone commented on everything but my work. So they would comment on like, so this is when ISIS was really like on the rise and everyone would comment on like the color black and how oppressive that is and how degrading that is. And like, oh, why are the lines or why is the figure looking down? She looks sad. And like just like everything that was connected to the, the media rather than my work and like the personal part of my work. And I remember walking out of that actually running out of that because I just started crying. I couldn't take it anymore. I just felt so attacked during that critique. And just imagine you're standing up in front of a room full of people who are nothing like you. You get what I'm saying? Who don't understand your experience, who don't understand your loneliness, who don't understand your anxiety or anything. And you're up there and you're being compared to works that are so sort of like the contemporary works in the art world. Muslim women, especially since 9-11, have been portrayed as oppressed and powerless by various media outlets in the West. And we see the consequences of this misrepresentation by how Hiba was treated by her peers for making art about herself and her faith. This kind of alienation marginalized artists feel is not a new experience. Many stop practicing because they are not given the support they need and are undermined by acts of sexism and racism. Yet as Hiba continues her story, she didn't internalize this negativity and give up. 
the opening of Open Gallery can be seen as an example of transformative resistance. Her struggle within the institution drove her to create something else to counter her feelings of isolation. And that's exactly what pushed me to have the open gallery as like a savior for myself as well, because I don't want anyone to feel that way. My whole goal is to have the open gallery be a comfortable platform. Anyone from any background, any sort of diverse background, any religion, any faith can come out and showcase their work. An open gallery, I feel like the name, the reason why I call it the open gallery is because it's literally taken and metaphorically taken. Right? It's open for everyone. Hiba goes beyond her own feelings and aims to help others with her initiative. Even within her own art, she continued to make art featuring women wearing hijabs to create more positive representation of Muslim women. When asked how Open Gallery has impacted her identity, she said, I've grown as a person, as an artist, as an cur- independent curator, I would say. I've grown as an individual because it's upped my experience in the art world. And the more experience you have, the more networking you have, the more you can branch out. Also, much like Noor, Hiba credits her difficult experience to her drive today, calling it a defining moment. And I feel like creating these city partnerships and just partnerships with small arts organizations or large art- arts organizations really helped me open up sort of my personality to others and help me network more and be more sociable and socialize a lot more. It's helped me communicate and help me learn about the art world in general. Yeah, that was a really big define. I will I don't think I'll ever forget that moment. That really shaped me. Here we see how fluid identity can be and how it can be changed. Hiba's want to be a visual artist changed because of her experiences and instead of giving up, she became a curator to bring people together. Hiba's community and home has always been in Mississauga. This is why she chooses to keep her events in that city. It was her safe haven from university, and she wants to continue making it a safe place for others and give back to her community. So as you can see, I'm activating like Mississauga as a creative hub because I just feel like you go to you go to Hamilton and it's like the Brooklyn of New York. There's so many artists there. It's like there's so many art crawls that are happening there and the arts is very live there. However, I don't find it so diverse in cultural, cultural history. Do you get what I'm saying? Like there's not many colored artists there that I find. And then you go to Toronto, but Toronto is so out of the way for people. And there are so, so many bedroom artists in Mississauga, but there is a lack of space. And what I'm trying to create is space for these artists. For Pamela, Noor, and Hiba, community and collaboration are deeply connected to their art making, and they use their practices to transformatively resist cultural institutions that have historically shut out marginalized communities from the art world. These artists have all had their setbacks and uncontrollable challenges in their careers, yet continue to practice art because of their want to create space and knowledge to counter these experiences, and because of the support from their own communities. This brings us to the end of episode two of Creating Third Spaces. Thank you to Pamela Matharu, Nur Bangu, and Hiba Mian for sharing their stories with me. I'll have one more episode before I conclude this series. I'm Mumta Menhas. Thanks for listening.